You know, we ask that first question, what is the Christian code? What we find in the psalm is that he doesn't give us a definition, but he gives us an image, a powerful visual image, which is the crux of the psalm, and we find it actually down in verse 6, if you want to look at that with me. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning. More than watchmen for the morning. We know it's the crux of the psalm, not only because it's in the middle of the passage, but also because it's repeated twice. My soul is for more than watchmen for the morning. I think that we need to step back to this time period to get a sense of what is so significant about this metaphor, this image of hope. Watchmen waiting for the morning. I don't think this is saying, you know, the watchman is thinking about his shift ending. <laughs> his shift ending, the warm meal, the soft bed. I'm looking forward to that. That's my posture as a watchman thinking about that. No, I think that in this time, when you were defending a city, especially if it was a time of danger or of battle, darkness was not, not the time you wanted to be in. Darkness was a time when you'd be vulnerable, when the enemy would have its moment to attack. In a sense, what, what you'd be thinking as the watchman was, you'd be looking for the dawn to come, for the peace that would come with knowing we can see what's on the other side of our city. And I think this sense of night being dangerous or vulnerable is actually something we see even in Anglican prayers. You know, this reformation that led to the rewriting of this prayer book had all these evening prayers that Christians would pray every night before they go to bed. And we even have some today that maintain the sense of night being a time of we're vulnerable and it's dark. I'll just read you two quick examples from these prayers. Bring us in safety to the morning hours. By your great mercy, defend us from all perils and dangers of this night. So just this image, this psalm gives us, is a watchman leaning over the ramparts of their city, and they're looking out, their eyes straining in the darkness for the first lights of dawn. And if you look with me back at verse 6, you know, not only does it give us this metaphor, the psalmist says, more than watchmen looking for, for dawn like that, my soul waits for the Lord. The soul, which is understood as the center of our being, the union of our minds and our hearts, our soul waits for the Lord. In a way, what this is just saying, very quickly, what is, what is the Christian hope? We have this image here. What this is saying is that deep down, each one of us, you and me, there's a little me inside me, leaning over the ramparts of my soul and then looking out into the darkness. And I'm looking to fix my eyes onto something on which I can find security and hope. That is what hope is. That's what the Christian hope is. And I think I know of no one who's done a better job showing how we all are oriented to hope this way than the postmodern novelist David Foster Wallace. I wonder if you've heard of him. He passed away, sadly, a few years ago. But he was a well-known author. He was an agnostic, not a Christian by any means. And yet he was invited to give a commencement address at a, at a college here in the States. And of all topics, he chose to speak on worship. <clears throat> not a Christian, not a religious person, not a religious university. But here's what he said to these graduating students. You get to consciously decide what has meaning and what doesn't. You get to decide what to worship. Because here's something else that's weird but true. In the day-to-day -day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, 
If they are waiting to have more meaning in life, then you will never have enough. You'll never feel you have enough. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally bleed you. Worship power. You will end up feeling weak and afraid. You will need ever more power over others to numb you to your own fear. Worship your intellect being seen as smart. You will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. He ends with this. He says, the insidious thing about these forms of worship is not that they're evil or sinful. It's that they're unconscious. They are the default settings. Wallace is making two points. When it comes to worship, when it comes to religion, to faith, it's something deeper than what kind of building you visit on a weekend. We all worship. There is no neutral ground. But the second thing he has to say is not all that we worship treats us the same. That the things that we tend to find our hope in, to look for security in, as that watchman peering over the city looks for, what we worship has a tendency to eat us alive. You know, I'll just say, against what Wallace is saying about the solution to this problem, I don't think just throwing God into this solves the problem. And just by illustration of this, I wonder, imagine a number of you know the movie Chariots of Fire. 1924 Olympic Games, Eric Little, you know, the Scottish runner, got a great accent. Uh, you know, and the whole story, if you know that, the film came out in the 80s, it won an Academy Award Best Picture. You know, the story of Eric Little is that he... Is born in China. His family is missionaries. But he's now moved back to Scotland. He's done his education there. He's a phenomenal athlete. But he's grappling with a call. He's starting to feel to go back to China to do ministry there. And as he's feeling this call, a team of you know friends around him, coaches, athletes, they encourage him. They say, you, know, you, really, you really should do this. And his father, even, the missionary himself, agrees and gets behind him. And he says these words to Eric. He says, you can praise God by peeling a spud if you peel it to perfection. Don't compromise. Compromise is the language of the devil. Run in God's name and let the world stand back and wonder. Anyway, this story ends up running. He runs that one season. He wins the Olympic Games and he goes and becomes a missionary in China. And I don't want to take away from the powerful encouragement this movie has been now, I'm not going to try to ruin this movie for you, but I'll just say, you know, I've found this movie encouraging, but I think that there is something in it that we can twist that alters the way we think about God. And I think in Northern Virginia, we're especially prone to it. And that is this. You know, we can think sometimes, like Eric Little, that God perhaps is most pleased with us when we are successful. That in a sense, if Eric Little hadn't won all those races, if he hadn't done his best, if he failed in some way, that God in some sense might be less pleased with him. Right? Because God gets the glory when Eric wins. So in that sense, is God's glory, is his pleasure in us diminished when we fall short of the things that we feel called to do? I think the challenge is, if we get thinking along those lines, when we do fail, when our reputation takes a hit, when we fall short of our expectations in our work, or even in the family we want to raise, if we fall short then, and we were doing that for God, we've not just failed, we've also failed God which I think is an even worse thing than where we started. All of a sudden, your failures maybe aren't just sad for you, but now you've let God down. I don't think that's what Eric Little was saying. I think that is a way we're tempted to twist this. I think that's 
the religious hope. We look at the secular hope of Wallace, the different things we naturally incline ourselves to find security in. I think a twisting of Eric Little's spirituality can lead to a religious hope, the one that still leaves us in the doghouse when we fail in the things we were doing for God. I think now the psalm gets to what is the Christian hope. I turn, turn your attention again to it, looking now at verse 7. Oh, is your hope in the Lord? For with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption. Christian hope is not a tint of religion here. It's not achievement. It is actually a person. The Christian hope is a person. It's God, and it's a God who we learn something about in verse 7. With this God is steadfast love. I think what this means, you know, steadfast love, that's a particular Hebrew word that's translated. But it's interesting in English, we always feel the need to lay it out as those two words, steadfast love. And I think what steadfast love can only mean is that it's love that exists when we are not steadfast. That's the only way you can know that that love was steadfast. This is a love that is a person. There's a pastor in New York City who puts it like this. He says, the difference between putting your trust in your job and putting your trust in Jesus is that your job won't die for you. It might treat you well when things are going well, but the moment it lets you down or you fall short, it's merciless. The Christian hope is a hope in a person, a person of a certain kind. And it's claiming to give you a kind of hope that your circumstances can't take away. Not only that, a kind of hope that your circumstances can only push you deeper into as it increases your hope in God. And I'll just close on this thought with a line from Jonathan Edwards, the great theologian from centuries ago. He said, the Christian hope is this. Your bad things will turn out for ultimate good. Your good things can never be taken away from you. And the best things are yet to come. The psalmist has told us what hope is. It's that source of security that we look for outside ourselves and we yearn for it, yearn for it, as the watchman over the city. He tells us what it is, and he also tells us how we can get it. How do you get that kind of hope firmly entrenched in your life? We're going to see that you only get it first if you cry. Look with me at verse 1. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? I think we see three things about this cry right away. It's urgent. One, he cries, verse one, out of the depths he cries to God. That language is the same language Jonah used when he was in the whale. <laughs> this is pretty urgent, desperate crying out to God that's happening. We see in those first three verses, the word Lord is used four times. Can you remember the last time someone asked you for something? And they used your name four times. Maybe if you're the toddler, you know how that feels. You know, this is an urgent cry. He's trying to get his attention four times. He uses the name of the Lord. It's an urgent cry. He tells, he gives commands to God. He asks that God would hear, that his ears would be attentive. He pleads with him. The cry is urgent. Number two, the cry is personal. Remember, we said this is a song that the whole people of God were singing when they went to Jerusalem. So it is corporate in that sense, but it's deeply personal as well. Out of the depths, I cry to you. Oh, Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my plea. The cry is urgent, it's personal, and it's also a cry for mercy. Verse 2. 
What he's really crying for, that your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. Mercy, which is the release, the reprieve of justice that you deserve. We see in verse 3, he has an awareness of his guilt before God. If you, Lord, should mark iniquities, if you jotted down the sins against you, Father, who could stand? I just want to pause. Remember, we're talking about how to get hope. The psalmist starts by talking about sin. Think about your sin. I think this is pretty unintuitive to us. It's unintuitive to me. The place that you want to get hope is starting thinking about your sins. I was at a university a few months ago, and a professor there, a professor of religion, was sort of sitting by some of the events that we were doing. I just went up and said hello to him. And he said, you know, I'm a professor of religion, because I don't like the kind of thing you all are doing here. And I said, I don't know, why is that? He said, well, do you believe in sin? And I said, yes. He said to me, why are you just going around making people feel bad? Huh? That's what, that's what this message is. is that, you know, we're trying to tell people that they're not, they're not good. Not good. What kind of message is that? How is that good news? I think the implication here is that if God was really loving, he wouldn't judge us. Right? True love exists in the absence of judgment. That's what love is. If you're loving, you're not judging. If you're judging, you're, you're not loving. But I wonder, are those concepts of love and judgment really that far away from each other? I had a seminary professor who used to say, and he would quote this group, he'd say, there's a group of philosophers out there known as the Black Eyed Peas. And in 2004, they released a hit single called Where is the Love? And there's a line in the song that goes like this. The truth is kept secret. It's swept under the rug. If you've never known truth, you've never known love. This group of philosophers. They're saying that you can't have love if you don't have truth. And I think that that's no more clear than in the case of relationships. And they're saying that goes like this. You know, someone could say to you, I love you fully, you know? You're fully loved, but let's say you're not fully known. That's going to be unsatisfying to some extent. If you're fully loved, but you're not fully known, that's going to be superficial. Why? Because you can always wonder, if they really knew me, if they really knew me to my depths, would they still love me? To be fully loved, but not fully known is superficial. But to be fully known, but not loved, that's our, that's our deepest fear. To be fully loved, but not fully known is superficial, but to be fully known, to have someone see us to the depths of who we are, to see us as a person we really are deep down, and then to be rejected for that, that's awful. That's the worst, to have someone see you like that and reject you. That's awful. That's our heart's deepest fear. But to be fully loved and fully known, that's our heart's deepest desire. To be known to the depths and yet to be chosen as someone saying, I know who you are and yet I still choose to love you. It's that true love is not in the absence of judgment, but in the presence of it. To be fully loved but not fully known is superficial. To be fully known but not loved is, is, is the worst thing ever. To be loved and known is our heart's deepest desire. The question is, can you have a God of genuine love if it's not a God of judgment? You can have a kind of Santa Claus at the mall love. Santa Claus will always love you. Even if you're an adult at the mall wanting to talk to Santa Claus, he'll always love you. That's not a love that can change your life. It's not. 
It was not a love in the presence of truth. To cry to God for mercy is to make yourself vulnerable to this God, to come as how you really are, to acknowledge how far you fall short. What the psalmist is saying is you can't have the Christian hope unless you cry. The cry needs to be urgent. When we see ourselves in the psalmist's place of despair, if you, O oh God, mark these sins down, we would have hope. The cry needs to be personal. It's not enough just to go to church. It's not enough even to recite these beautiful prayers. We do recite them as a group, but the cry needs to be personal as well. We need to say to God, I cry for mercy. If you want this hope, you need to cry. The second thing he tells us is that you need to trust. The reason why the psalmist can cry out and come as he really is is because he trusts. Look with me now at verse 4, just walking through this now. He trusts in the character of God. But with you, there is forgiveness. Find characters as well. Characteristics in verse 7. With the Lord, there's steadfast love. With him is plentiful redemption. Because he knows this about the character of God, he can cry. He can trust in this part of God's character. And we see in verse 5, just walking through these verse by verse, we see in verse 5 where this sense of God's character comes from. He gets it from God's word. Verse 5, I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I hope. You don't see the movie Interstellar came out a few years ago. Uh, that movie, which is about time travel and, you know, planets and space. And the heart of that story, though, is about a father and a daughter. That's what the real story is about. And as the father is leaving the daughter, not really knowing when he's going to come back, he's aware that because time passes slower in space, she might be older than him when he comes back to Earth. And she's so upset that he's leaving, she won't even say goodbye to him. But he goes, he promises he'll come back, the promise he knows he can't keep. And the story goes, and that's actually what happens. The daughter ages, he stays young. And then when he comes back, the daughter has actually gotten so old that technology has advanced that you can do this thing where you can like shut your body down, but to the point that you could be revived if something happened. And she does this. She doesn't choose just to die. She chooses to take this step to wait. And you know, the, the father comes back and he meets her as she's been woken up. And he says, you know, why did you wait? She says, knew you were coming back. She says, and he says, how did you know that? And she says, because my dad told me so. She trusted in the words of her father that spoke to the father's character. And what she did in response was she waited. So the psalmist is doing here. The reason he can cry out to God is because he trusts in who God really is. The reason why he can know that God is that way is because God's word has said that. What does God's word say? When we look at that question in verse 5, I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in, my, in his word I hope. Well, what is he waiting for? What does it have to do with God's word? One, what is the psalmist waiting for? He tells us actually that question. That he answers it in verse 8. God will redeem Israel from all his iniquity. The psalmist is waiting for God to redeem Israel, to forgive Israel. For the Jews, this was a day they looked forward to. At the end of time, they come before God, and as they stood before him, God would forgive and redeem his people. That's what he's waiting for, is for that day of redemption. What does that have to do with the word? 
And this is something the Bible, when you look at it as a whole, is something that it spoke about to the Jews. Isaiah 118 says, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. What is that future orientation? The forgiveness of the Israelites was something I looked forward to. It was something that was going to happen on the end of time, when they would be vindicated, when God would forgive them. And when we're looking back at verse 6, we're thinking of the watchmen waiting, we're realizing that as the Israelites would be singing this song going up to Jerusalem, they were calling all of themselves to have that yearning, that hope, that expectation, that search for security that would come with the dawn, not of the sun rising, but of the forgiveness of Israel that would happen on the last day. And if this were a Jewish sermon, we would end here and say, we are waiting. We are here to wait for the forgiveness of God's people. Friends, the wonderful news is with the coming of Jesus, through his death on the cross, that waiting now for us becomes dwelling. Our trusting in God's word no longer leads us to hope and wait for a future forgiveness, but rather to dwell on the forgiveness that has already happened in the past. What the psalmist is waiting for is something Christians believe has already happened. We're no longer looking over the ramparts to look for that hope that comes from the forgiveness in the future. Instead, we're dwelling on the rescue that has already happened. And theologians call this the doctrine of assurance. This is what the Reformation was all about. 500 years anniversaries. That's the year we're in, you know, this year. We've heard about that. 500 years since the Reformation. A lot of it had to do with this doctrine of assurance. How can you be assured that God loves you? How can you know for sure that you're forgiven? You know, as one pastor likes to put it, a lot of religions out there talk about a God of love. That's not unique to the Christian faith. The question is, how do you know? How do you know that God has forgiven you? If someone just told you over and over that they loved you so much, could you really know for sure that love was there? You need to see it in action. Christian faith, instead of just giving you words about God's love, gives you a story, a true story, written on the pages of history, things that really happened. And at the heart of that story is a cross. And this assurance is something that God's word leads us to. In verses like Hebrews 1.3, which says that Jesus, after making a purification for sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Jesus is sitting down. It doesn't mean much to us today, but in this culture, you would sit down when your work is finished. What this means is that when Jesus died on the cross, he didn't just die for sins in the past, or the ones he'll commit today. He died for every single sin that you've ever committed, that you ever will commit. What that means is that you can trust because he died then, because he loved you then, when it cost him everything, you can know he loves you now. You can know that you're forgiven. We see that even in the confidence of the psalmist. He knew it from God's character. We know it from God's deeds. Look at that in verse 8. He will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. This psalmist has assurance. That's what the Christian hope brings. The steadfast love of God brings the assurance that you know where you stand with God. Spoke about the Christian hope. How do you get it? You can't get it unless you cry. You can't get it unless you trust. You trust in God's character. You trust that from the Word of God. It's a trust that leads you to dwell on the rescue and the finality of what's already happened. Last section. What is the Christian hope? How do we get it? When do we have it? Look with me at verse 4. But with you there is forgiveness, that you may be feared. How can we know that we've got this Christian hope? The psalmist is telling us we can know if we see that we are forgiven, that we may fear. 
This is not the modern sense of the word fear, which means to be afraid. It's the older sense of the word. Just to do with a sense of reverence for awe and wonder. I think the word awesome is the most misused word in our culture today. When we talk about God as awesome, we talk about pizza as awesome. <laughs> but the original sense of that word actually meant something was so wonderful that you were actually a little frightened. I don't feel that way about pizza. I might feel that way about God. So this is saying that the Christian faith doesn't end with forgiveness. It's a vision that we might fear God, that we might live our lives in reverence, committed to Him, that we might see on the cross God giving Himself to us and respond by returning, laying down our lives for Him. How can you know you have the Christian hope? You'll find yourself a desire to start living the way that God would have you live. And the question that's challenging and convicting for us is, Am I following God more closely than I was a year ago? Am I following him more closely than I was a month ago? We'll all fall short here. But the question is, do you have that desire? Do you get it? Do you have that hope? If not, have you cried? Are you trusting? Do you know that? God has forgiven us that we might change, that we might be changed people. The whole message of the Christian faith is summarized like this. Jesus has died for your sins that you can be forgiven and to give you the Holy Spirit to change your life. When we know we have this down, we find that fear, that reverence grows for God, but we also find we want to share about this hope that we have. Look with me at verse 7. The psalmist has just cried out to God. He's seen his situation. He's seen his need for forgiveness. He's cried out to God. He's trusted in God's word and character that allows him to trust in the forgiveness of God. And in verse 7, after all of this, he turns to the people around him and he says, Oh Israel, hope in the Lord. A sign that we'll get this hope is that we'll be burdened for other people to know it as well. C.S. Lewis wrote a book on the Psalms called Reflections on the Psalms. And in this, he had a little section on these sayings that all throughout the Psalms, these sort of turnings back to the people of God from someone within that group to exhort them to place their hope in God. And here's what he says. I hadn't noticed before that just as men spontaneously praise whatever they value, so they spontaneously urge us to join them in praising it. Isn't she lovely? Wasn't it glorious? Don't you think that magnificent? The psalmists in telling everyone to praise God, are doing what all men do when they speak about what they really care about. So heartbroken for those who don't know God, who don't see that hope for themselves. Have we cried? Have we dwelled? I just want to end with this last thought. You know, we said at the beginning that it's likely that Jesus probably sang these songs when he was doing his pilgrimage to Jerusalem. And that makes me wonder, you know, maybe even as a child, how much of this would he realize was about him? I wonder, did he realize then, did he know that he would cry out to God out of his depths, the greatest depths there ever were, the depths of all the wrath of God against all the sin of all the world, that he would cry out to God and that his cry would go unanswered. 
in an unkind world. Did he realize that he, the only one who could stand before God without iniquity, that he would wait for God, that he would hang on a cross, and God would not rescue him. So that we could find our rescue. He went to God and found the love that he had for all eternity. In God the Father and the Spirit and the Son. He went to God and found that love taken away. He experienced the ultimate interruption of God's love so that we could find that same love steadfast for us. I wonder how much you would have realized that as a child, as you got older, that these songs were really about him. I just want to close with this story. I think that there is no better literary illustration of how Forgiveness changes us than the story of Lameus. In the story, Jean Valjean's the main character. He's got a rough life. He steals a loaf of bread to, sit, uh, to feed his niece who's you know, dying of hunger. He steals that loaf. He's thrown in prison. He tries to escape. The term is lengthened. He ends up spending 19 years in prison. He gets out. He's out for just you know a day. And uh, he happens to be invited to the home of a bishop. The bishop gives him a wonderful meal. Uh, a warm bed to stay in, but in the middle of the night, Valjean gets up, he goes back to the dining room where he had the meal, he goes into the cupboard, he pulls out the nice silver he'd just been fed his dinner on, he stuffs it in a bag, he leaves. The morning comes, he's arrested, he's brought back into the house, he's brought before the bishop, the guards laying the charge against him, and the bishop, when he has the full right to, to rebuke this man for this response to his kindness, instead, what does he do? He, he says, oh, Valjean, I'm so glad you're back. You forgot the best thing. You forgot the candlesticks and these precious silver candlesticks. He throws them in the bag with all the other silver. And he asks the guards to leave. And he says, you've got a big mistake here. These were gifts, and you left the best behind. I'm so glad you're back. And in the, the, the film and the, the musical, the bishop then says these words to Valjean. He pulls him aside. You know, the guards have left. It's just this intimate moment between him and the brother. He says, remember this, my brother. See in this some higher plan. You must use this precious silver to become an honest man. God is so shaken by this experience. Actually, in the film, they have him run into a church. Interestingly, it doesn't happen in the book. And he looks up at a crucifix, and he says these words, thinking through what's just happened to him. He says, why did I allow this man to touch my soul and teach me love? He treated me like any other. He gave me his trust. He called me brother. One word for him, from him and I'd be back, beneath the lash upon the rack. Instead, he offers me my freedom. I feel my shame inside me like a knife. He told me that I have a soul. How does he know? What spirit came to move my life? Is there another way to go? And he ends by saying, another story must be given. you see it happen like that in the story, you realize how real it is. When we're really forgiven, when we really receive a love we didn't deserve, it changes us. Christian faith is about giving you a source of love that's steadfast. A love that your circumstances cannot change. Let me close in prayer. Do you have that? I think you can. Let me close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we 
looking for your word that anticipates and knows, knows us through and through, that knows how we are searching for security. And we look out in vulnerability, looking for something to give us a sense of identity and worth. Lord, we thank you that you meet us where our need is. We thank you for the steadfast love that you don't just read about, but see acted out on the cross on our behalf. Heavenly Father, would you so plant that love deep inside our hearts that it would become our hope that we would live changed lives. Help in your glory. In your son's name, I pray.